0: Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, in these verses we find the apostle explaining himself and his methodology to the Corinthians, He he's here reiterating the fact that his purpose and everything that he's been saying all the way back to chapter 1 has been to teach them. Paul was always after the edification of the churches. That was always supreme in his mind. And, and as we, we know ourselves, it's still true today, different churches and different circumstances would require different methods And here Paul is explaining his method. If we were to to take sort of a a bird's eye view of each of the epistles that Paul wrote and we were able to set aside the specific verses that usually stand out in our minds with regard to those epistles and maybe even set aside the, the primary doctrinal themes that we usually equate to those or with those epistles. If we set all of that aside and we just considered how he goes about what he's doing, we always find a methodology. He always had a special approach or even we might say a tactic that he would employ in order to help each church in the very best way possible. And we know he only was able to do this because of the illumination and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here, as I said, he's he's using one of those tactics, and he's explaining that. He's explaining himself, explaining his methods, explaining his purpose. And he also here, again, appeals to the rational faculties of the Corinthian Christians to help them see for themselves the way that they were acting was wrong. He, he, he's appealing to their, their own reason. Again, this is another one of the spectacular ways that Paul will often deal with a church. He will use their own reasoning so that he can exhort them. And by the time he has exhorted them, they feel like they've exhorted themselves. Because all he did was appeal to their own reasoning, what they already knew. The way that they were acting was contrary to reason. It was contrary to the way that the Christian church was set up. It was contrary to the wisdom of God which had made foolish the wisdom of the world. It was contrary to the very centerpiece of Christianity itself, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners. The way that they were acting was contrary to the, the crucified Christ, the crucified Messiah. And as Christians, we, we, we never have an excuse for thinking or living in ways that are contrary to that pattern set for us by our Lord. As Christians, we see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ not only as the indispensable act which secures our salvation, our reconciliation with God, that that does away with the judgment of God uh, for our sins and puts us at peace with Him. It's not just that. The cross, the, the, the suffering of the King as a substitute for His subjects, that whole idea, we see in that a pattern for our own way of life, our own way of thinking, our, our the way that we view other people, the way that we view ourselves. It, it, it's all to take the form of the crucifix. The Christian is to live the crucified life, as others have said. We take up our cross and follow Jesus. We die to ourselves as Jesus died. We... Uh, as Paul says, the world is crucified to us and we to the world. The the cross shapes our whole worldview. Yeah. The way that the Corinthians were acting was contrary to that. The thinking of the world or worldly wisdom is always contrary to what should be the thinking of the Christian. The Christian's thinking is to be contrary to the world. We, we think differently. It is to be in in almost every sense backwards in the way that the world thinks. And the Corinthians had drifted back into a worldly way of thinking. But because Paul is assuming that they're true Christians, he knows that he can appeal to them to examine the issue, examine their own hearts, and they would be able to say, you know what, you're right. The way that we're acting is contrary to the gospel we have heard and believed. And so that's what he's doing here. He's explaining himself And then he exhorts them to think differently. He's trying to push them to a right way of thinking. Now, we saw last week in verse 3 that the way that Paul is dealing with the Corinthians is in some ways what we would consider a little blunt. Remember in verse 3 last week, he said, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Now, most of us would be offended if... Somebody else came to us and said, "You know what? It really doesn't matter a whole lot what what you think of me, because we want everybody to take our opinion of them and make that the supreme opinion. We want our ideas and our our judgments treasured." Paul writes to this church and he says, "It's a very small thing your judgment of me." So he's he's being a little blunt. And next week we're going to see that he actually turns the the heat. ...of the rhetoric up even more. And we'll, we'll get to see that as he gets um, even, dare I say, a little sarcastic with the Corinthians... ...because of this issue. But before he does that, in, in these verses, like a good spiritual father... ...he writes a few lines explaining why he has taken this method... ...why he's been speaking the way he speaks... And what is his goal in all of this? He, he's helping them to see that he does have their best interest in mind. That he's not just shooting from the hip. He's not even just defending himself, which he he does have to do in, in the Corinthian letters. But that, that none of that is his ultimate goal. His ultimate aim is to help them. And he wants them to see that. In verse 6, we see that Paul has, as he explains himself, he has a, a method... And he has a purpose. And so he's explaining to them his method and his purpose. First, he explains his method. Let's look at verse 6 again. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. Now, right there, he just explained himself. Now, when you read that, and when I had initially read that, in, in the way that it's translated here, we would say, how is that an explanation of anything? Well, when he says all these things... I've applied all these things. He's more than likely talking about everything that he has said about himself and Apollos up until this point. All of the confusion surrounds the word that is here translated applied, which in my estimation is really a, a reduction. It's almost so simplistic that when we read it, we, there, there's no way we can get the idea that he's trying to convey. And it is actually hard to determine what he's saying here. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. The King James renders it, I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos. And the New King James says, I have figuratively transferred. And then the the modern English version and the, the NASB, I think, both say figuratively applied. So you see a mixture of. We have in the ESV the word applied, Then you've got in a figure, figuratively transferred, figuratively applied. That's the, the idea that the translators have, have tried to convey, or the words that they're using to try to convey this idea or this word. The word that's translated applied here means literally to disguise or to transform or to change appearance or, or in longer form. The word means to transfer or translate surface details of one thing to another thing without changing the substance of the content. So it's almost like, I've, almost like he's saying, I've, I've changed the outside of these things, but the, the content is still the same. Or if we put that definition into the verse, it would read like this. I have transferred the surface details of all of these things to myself and Apollos while maintaining the same substantial content. Now, even with all of that, we say, what does that mean? What, What does he mean by this? Well, there are, from what I can tell, three basic options in the history of interpretation as to what he means by this. The first one is, when he says this, what he is finally saying in the fourth chapter is that there were actually no divisions in Corinth that had Paul and Apollos at the center of them at all. So they'd been dividing over various preachers. Now we find out it wasn't about Paul and Apollos at all. The divisions were actually over the men who were still in Corinth. As Paul writes, Paul's not there, Apollos is not there, Cephas is not there, Christ is not there bodily, somebody is in Corinth, they do have Christian leaders, they have pastors, preachers, That those are the ones that the divisions are about. But he has applied the matter using himself and Apollos as the examples so that he doesn't have to name those men in order to avoid making the controversy worse by naming their actual pastors. That's one option. Um, I would say I like that. It's attractive. It, it, it would To me, it would show just another angle of Paul's genius. Uh, at the same time, I think that that idea maybe goes a little too far, that the Corinthians would have been reading this entire time thinking, Paul and Apollos, we're not divided over Paul and Apollos. They would have been confused the entire time. And then all of a sudden he says, you see what I've been doing. So I think that might be too far personally, but that's one option. A second option is that he had applied these things to himself and Apollos only, even though there were others involved in addition to them. So the divisions were over Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the so-called Christ party, but also the men who were still pastoring the church he just didn't name their names. He just mentioned himself and Apollos. Sort of laying down a principle that said that, that he could then say, now, if it applies to me and Apollos, it applies to your pastors as well. That's another option. Also uh, attractive. The third option is that rather than speaking in general terms by saying, ministers are servants don't boast in men, chapter 5. Just... One sentence. He has taken these things and applied the whole case very specifically to himself and Apollos. Apollos and I are servants, so stop boasting in men. So the, the, the he had transferred the whole concept of the Christian ministry over onto them, even though many were, more were involved. Just so that he didn't, or he was able to be as specific as possible, again without damaging the church, mentioning their their pastors who were there in the church the sense of saying something uh, in a figure or figuratively transferred is that Paul had had been speaking in, this is the best we can say, some kind of veiled reference, some kind of figure of speech or some kind of illustrative speech in, in what he's been saying. He had not spoken exactly, literally, exclusively to the issue in some type of wooden Literalism. He, he used some type of figure of speech. We know that he had spoken about himself and Apollos exclusively since chapter 3, verse 4. In chapter 1, verse 12, he did name those other names. He named four factions, but he hasn't mentioned them since. He's only been talking about himself and Apollos. But this was his method. And the reasoning why, why would he do this, we ask, and, and I think it could be diverse. As as we just said, it it could be just to keep from leaving matters vague and in the abstract. The the ministry is for your service. Don't boast in men. Next issue. He wanted to be very specific. This is why Paul has come. This is why Apollos has come. This is our job. Don't boast in these types of men. To to be very specific. Uh, Another reason, I think, as I've already mentioned, is to avoid causing further harm by naming the men who were actually serving in the church at that time. Again, Paul's not there. Paulus is not there. Peter's not there. Christ is not there bodily. Somebody is ministering in Corinth. There are pastors and elders. We don't know their names. And there are divisions there. He's not writing about something that happened long ago. He's writing to the issue at hand. But he doesn't name those men. And it seems to be more than likely because that would have caused more disturbance, more destruction. A, a third reason was probably, as we said, to lay down principles that if applied to Apollos or to Apollos and Paul would certainly apply to those who minister in a, in a what we would call a lower office. In other words, if this rule applies to the apostle, don't boast in the apostle. And don't boast in Apollos, the apostolic delegate. If you can't boast in those men, then you definitely should not be boasting in the, the, the run-of-the-mill pastor elders who are in the church from here on out. But that's his method. He, he, he's used, been using something like a figure of speech, a, a manner of speaking that didn't go as far as it could. Something has been veiled. But he made the point nonetheless... And, and maybe even made the point a little more specific uh, or explicit. An illustration for us would be, and I'm, I don't... This is not a, uh, an affirmation or a denial of such language. This is perhaps uh, a matter of conscience. But you, you might hear someone say to their child, I'm going to give you a spanking. Or you might hear someone say, I'm going to tan your hide. Now, I've just used a figure of speech... But the figure of speech actually made it much more explicit about what was was happening. That's kind of the idea here. He's used some sort of figurative language or speech, applying the matter to himself and Apollos, to make his point. Then he explains his purpose. Why did he do this? Well, he says at the end of the verse, For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So we see that ultimately he had done this. He spoke this way for the benefit of the church. Or literally it reads, for you, brothers. I've I've applied these things to Apollos and myself for you. It was for you, for your benefit, for your good. It was for them so that they would learn. And the learning would help them to think soberly. As for their learning, he says, I've done this for your benefit that you may learn by us or in us, Apollos and I, not to go beyond what is written. Or I've, I've spoken this way, I've this, used this figure of speech so, and I've applied it to Apollos and me so that you would learn in Apollos and me, us as the example, this very important lesson not to go beyond what is written. Now Paul had mentioned, remember, speaking of himself and Apollos, that they were servants, that each of them had a differing role assigned to them by God, and yet they were essentially one in purpose, and being assigned roles by God and being one in purpose, at the same time, apart from God, they were nothing, comparatively speaking. They both stood to be evaluated on the final day for what they had done as to their faithfulness and as to the duty of stewarding the gospel of God. He applied all of his illustrations, all of that to Apollos and himself. And the Corinthians were supposed to learn in all of that, this lesson. Do not go beyond what is written. That's the lesson. Do not go beyond what is written. One commentator says about this, quote, I take this to be a reference to the sufficiency of Scripture. And I think he's right. However however, we want to parse this in its original application and the details of what Paul is really getting at, for us, this comes down to us as a statement about the sufficiency of Scripture, especially with regard to the Christian ministry. When it comes to the Christian ministry, Scripture is sufficient to Outline the duty, the roles, the qualifications, the prescriptions, every bit of it. The sufficiency of Scripture. Do not exalt men to a pedestal any higher than the Word of God gives. Amen. Do not go beyond what is written. If that's true for, for Paul and Apollos, which we, we might describe them as uh, extraordinary offices, not normal, there are no more apostles and apostolic delegates as Apollos would have been, there, there are no more of those extraordinary offices. If it's true about them, then how much more true would it be of what we call the ordinary office of the pastor elder? Do not go beyond what is written. Scripture is sufficient. And that's what he, it seems that that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I spoke this way. I used our names, Paul and Apollos. I used those names And I avoided using using anybody else's name. I applied it to us. And he could say, I use scripture references, as we've seen, all the way back to chapter 1. I've used scripture metaphors like the planting of a garden and the building of the building and the temple. I've used all of that so that you would learn a lesson that, if applied in our case, would give you a principle that you could apply in every church, in every place. And that is, do not go beyond what is written. Going beyond the written Word of God. Every time we go beyond what is written, we devalue what is written. Every time. If we go further on an issue than what Scripture says, what we're saying is, well, what God has said is actually insufficient. He should have said more. I'll fix it. If we stop short... Of what scripture says. What we're saying is. I think the Bible is actually irrelevant. God does go further. But I'm not interested in what he has to say. There's no way that we can go beyond what is written. Either adding to it. Or taking away from it. That does not devalue the scriptures. So that's the first reason that he gives. I spoke this way. I used all of this. And applied it to us. So that you would learn this very very valuable lesson. Do not go beyond what is written. But then secondly, and following right on the tail of that, they're they're connected. He says, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So letting scripture alone dictate our thinking of the Christian ministry, not going beyond what is written, protects us from arrogance. Or what he says here, that you... That none of you may be puffed up. It's the same word that's translated arrogant elsewhere. That none of you may be arrogant in favor of one against another. Now we have two more options as to what he was hinting at here or what he was getting at. When he says in favor of one against another. Number, option number one is that, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one teacher over against another teacher. That fits the context that he's, he's been describing The second option is that no one would be puffed up in favor of himself over against another individual in the church, which goes well into what he's about to say in verse 7. But the point of both of these options, whichever way you take it, is the same. Either skip the metal man, they were exalting themselves, or put in the middleman, they were exalting their favorite teachers so that they could exalt themselves. Either way, the problem is they were puffed up. They were, both cases were leading to or feeding the problem of pride and arrogance. They were puffed up. So he says, I've spoken this way so that you would learn this lesson. Don't go beyond what is written. So that in learning that lesson, you won't be puffed up. He applied this matter to himself and Apollos to teach them to stop going beyond the written word of God in their thinking. And here he says, if they would do that, it would keep them from personal arrogance and pride. Setting oneself on scriptural principles, fixing your feet on scriptural principles, rooting yourself in the word of God... And saying, I will not go beyond what is written, that will always serve to keep you humble. Always. It is only our pride that would say, I'm going to go beyond or I'm going to stop short because I think I've got something better than what God's Word has. But if we will say, My feet are like that, they have been sunk. Into the wet concrete of God's word. The concrete has dried and hardened. I cannot move. That will humble you. Every time. So there Paul explains himself. His method. And his purpose. Now a few things that we can learn. Just from that first point. Four four things we can learn. The first one. Is more of a use. From this verse. And that is this. Just. Take note and observe the way that Paul dealt with people. Think about the way he would deal with these these Corinthian Christians. And and this would apply really in every epistle. You know, we we, we see the verses that we latch on to. We know these verses are found in these epistles. We find these doctrines that are located in various epistles. We, we find the, the great doctrine of sovereign election in Ephesians 1. We find the great doctrine of, of justification by faith in, in Galatians. Those, those types of doctrines we, we ascribe to an epistle. Set those things aside and think and, and, and observe how the apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, deals with human beings and with issues in the church. He addressed this whole issue, which was a problem in his absence, and no doubt continued to be a problem. We find out in 2 Corinthians there are so-called super apostles who had come into the church. He did all of this, and the only names he has named, as he's been dealing with it in particular, has been himself and Apollos. And it seems fairly obvious to me, and again this is pretty much universal amongst interpreters, that the reason he did this was to keep from causing further damage by naming the men in that church. Some of you follow this man, and some of you follow this man, and some of you follow this man. He didn't want to do that. And we would do well to learn his example. Paul is not willing to ignore an issue that would certainly eventually destroy this young church from the inside out. Do we understand there are issues that will, the issue itself, will destroy a church. At the same time, there are issues, there are disagreements, there are variations of opinion that in themselves won't destroy churches. We'll see in a minute the way that we address them might destroy churches. But by itself, the issue is not a a make it or break it uh, atomic bomb dropped into a church. But there are issues like that. That if this gets into the church and it spreads, the church is done. And, Paul did not ignore those types of issues like we see here. There there is a time and a place where we follow Peter who says that we ought to let love cover a multitude of sins. But there are some issues that because of love, they have to be addressed quickly. If they're not, they will destroy a church. Paul never passed over issues like that. In Galatia, when they had falsified the gospel... He didn't say, well, just let love cover those false teachers. He said, let them be damned. Some of the harshest language in the New Testament. He wasn't, he he didn't pass over these types of issues. Divisions in the church, exalting men and following into these factions after men. He says, I can't let this go. This, This is not a small thing. He addressed it. He never passed over such issues, and we should ask God for the wisdom to be able to tell the difference between issues which destroy and issues which don't. Say, God, give me wisdom. Is this something that if this infiltrates, the church is done? There's no church. Ask God for the wisdom to know the difference, but also ask God for wisdom in addressing the things which are deadly that need to be addressed. Paul addressed That which would have destroyed this church. But as we just saw in his method, he does it in a way that does not in itself destroy the church. A lot of times, the method that we use to address an issue destroys the church. The issue is nothing. We make a mountain out of a molehill, and that, our addressing of it, becomes a problem. He doesn't use the names of the men who were leading in that church at the time of his writing. He purposefully sought to keep the peace as much as possible. So again, to be sure, there are issues that won't ruin a church. But we can go about them in ways that will destroy a church. So we again should ask God for wisdom to know, what do I address? Is this an issue that needs to be addressed? And now it, now that I've got that clear, ask, Father, will you show me how to address this? What is the best way? We should ask God for the wisdom to address matters in the right way that doesn't cause further damage. Paul's supreme goal was always the purity of the church, but that was a coin with another side. The other side of that coin was always the unity of the church. They always went together. We didn't want, he never strove for purity at the cost of unity, or unity that somehow got rid of doctrinal purity. They always went together. How can we maintain purity doctrinally in our beliefs and our theology and at the same time unity? And this is the way he approached these matters. And our, our thinking should be patterned after his, which I believe was given to him by Christ himself. So just observe, just think about how he deals with stuff. It's a fascinating study. Secondly... From, from this first point, I think we could say that we ought to learn Paul's lesson. Learn the lesson that he gave here. What was that? Do not go beyond what is written. Man. Learn that lesson. More than likely, this, this was a, a popular catchphrase of the time. As most commentators read this. They say this might have been something that was sort of uh, said in the Corinthian culture that drew their minds back to maybe some uh, philosophical idea. Paul brings this in and says, here's a lesson. Don't go beyond what is written. For us, what is written is the Word of God. We do not go beyond what is written. That's our lesson. Learn the lesson. As Christians, our, in our living, in our decision-making, our opinion-forming, and especially in church matters, we have to learn this lesson. Do not go beyond what is written. Don't go past it. Don't stop short of it. Subscribe to all that is written. And we have to learn, this is a a part of growing in faith, we have to learn to lay ourselves upon the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, the Word of God, lay ourselves upon the Word of God, and say, I'm in your hands. Lord, the outcome is yours. But I I have to stand here. That requires faith. It requires humility to say, I... I I can't control, I can't force outcomes, I can't make it go a certain way. All I can say is, here is what the Word of God says, I stand upon it, and I cannot move. We we should always strive to go as far as the Bible goes in holiness, in obedience, in self-sacrifice, in service, as far as it goes. Don't stop short. Go as far as it goes. And then rest where we have to stop and say, the word of God stops there. I have to stop. You cannot go wrong if you will say, I will not go beyond what is written. You'll never go wrong, Amen. ever. Now, I'll also add to that, just as a, maybe a, a fun game for us all. If you find a matter in this life that you are convinced you say the word of God does not speak to this issue at all. Not even related. Please come find me and tell me that issue. Because I've not found it yet. If, if God can say, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That tells me there is, there is some way to bring the word of God and apply it to every matter. Not, in, not always in the same way, but every matter. We, you'll, we'll often say, well, the scriptures are sufficient as the rule of uh, saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, but the Bible doesn't tell us how to change the oil in our vehicles. To that I agree. It doesn't give us the instructions and oil change, but it does tell me how I'm supposed to do it, as unto the Lord, for His glory, for His honor, and a good stewardship of the things He's given me. There, there are principles from the Word of God that apply to every matter of life, so don't, don't, don't think that we're looking for... Uh, a chapter and a verse that says here, you know, here's where the Word of God addresses you know, how long to keep a toothpick in your mouth before you get rid of it and get a new one. Or whatever. Some, some, that, that's not how we think. But the, the Word of God should shape everything in our life. So if you find that thing, please come tell me. Um, I think it would be an interesting conversation. Yeah. Thirdly, guard against the tendency to being puffed up. Guard against the tendency to be puffed up? Do we not all have this tendency in ourselves to be puffed up and think in our minds that we are in some way, somehow better than our brothers and sisters? Do we not find ourselves at times thinking that we're better than one of our brothers and sisters and if we would just stop and think about the issue we would say that's the stupidest thing. That is the silliest thing for anyone to exalt themselves over someone else. But I have grabbed that thing so that I can say. Look look what I have over my brother or sister's head. But this is what we do. We have this tendency and we have to guard against it. Think about all that the word of God has to say about pride and haughtiness. About judging our neighbor wrongly. Think about all that it says about judging ourselves soberly. And then weigh that against how often you catch yourself Thinking of another Christian, how could she fill in the blank? How could he? How, how could he say such a thing? How could he do such a thing? How could she even ever think you fill in the blank? That's, that's us pretending as though we have come to this place where we would never, under any circumstance, make such a foolish mistake as those poor, lowly Christians Like our brothers and sisters. Are they so blind that they can't see? Dot, dot, dot. Brothers and sisters, we are, as the Word of God describes us, like sheep. Every single one of us is absolutely helpless apart from our shepherd. And if we're honest, every single day we are all like children who have to go to our Heavenly Father and say things that are paralleled with, can you open this for me? Can you carry this for me? Daddy, can you reach that for me? Don't call God Daddy. But this, this is the way our children talk to us. Can you reach that? It's too high. Can, can you show me how to do this? Can you help me do this or that? We're like little children. We can't do anything on our own. To the idea that then I, who am helpless apart from God, would then look at another helpless one apart from God and think that I'm somehow better at being helpless. In my helplessness, I'm better than their helplessness. It doesn't make any sense. While everything in our our corruption would seek to be puffed up in ourselves, everything that we see in the Word of God, everything that we see in reality, everything in our experience tells us deflate. Don't be puffed up deflate, let the air out, lay on the ground, humble yourself, take up the mantle of a servant, guard against even those thoughts of arrogance and pride. And fourthly, from this first point, we learn this. Learning the lesson, do not go beyond what is written, in order to put an end to that pride, arrogance, benefits the church. It benefits the church. In other words, if we do all of this, steps one through three, or two and three, if we'll learn the lesson, we'll put to death our pride, it will be a benefit to the church. Remember, that was Paul's purpose. I've I've done all of this. I've applied all these things to Apollos and myself for you. That's what he's saying. It was for you, for your good, for your benefit, to help you the opposite. Refusing to abide by the boundaries and prescriptions of Scripture. In other words, breaking the rule, do not go beyond what is written. If you break that rule, that hurts this church. To be even more specific, going beyond what is written, stopping short of what it says or adding to what it says, has Hurt this church does hurt this church will hurt this church as long as we have anyone who says the word of God is just not quite sufficient for this matter or that matter. That's always going to hurt the church always being puffed up over one another looking down on others despising one another treating some members as if they were secondary members or less than members hurts this church. It it is hurting the church. It has hurt the church. It will hurt the church. Paul's aim is to help the church. So he says, I've spoken this way so that you will learn the lesson so that you will not be puffed up because that will help the church. It will benefit the church. Holding fast to the word of God, humbling ourselves, loving one another, sacrificially loving one another to the point where it costs us. It hurts us. Laying ourselves out for one another, that benefits the church. That helps the church. That honors Christ because it takes up his pattern and says, look at this glorious pattern of a Christ who laid down his life for sinners. Who am I? I'm I'm not a Christ. Then why why would I stumble at the idea of laying myself out for my brothers and sisters? It helps the church. Paul's goal was always a healthy, happy, holy church. And again, he got this from the Lord. Who loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. That was Christ's aim. That was Paul's aim. That ought to be our aim. A a holy, happy, healthy church. But it won't happen As long as we say, I know the word of God says this, I'm just going to do something else. That hurts the church. So there Paul explains himself, his method, his purpose. Secondly, he exhorts his hearers. Coming straight out of that explanation, it's almost like he can't help but add in another exhortation along with it. And we see the connection at the beginning of verse 7 in the word for. Which means, here's here's what I mean by that. Here's, Here's what I'm getting at in applying those things that you, you shouldn't be puffed up one, uh, one against another for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, I say that this is an exhortation because what he's doing is now seeking to move them in the direction of obedience as, as he's been doing throughout this whole thing. But he's, he's trying to push them in the direction of right thinking, right action. But we need to take note of how he does this, his methodology. He does it using questions. And as I said before, when, when he does this, he uses questions, he appeals to their reason so that whenever they get to the conclusion, it's almost like they've convinced themselves. And they, they walk away think, thinking, man, that cut me up. Man, that was convicting. But they think they did it to themselves. Because it was their own thinking. They they knew the truth. They can't answer these three questions. And if and when they do answer these questions, they will discover the truth for themselves. He doesn't just have to say, don't do this, take my word for it. He's appealing to them. Think about this. So each question here is is rhetorical. The answer is implied in the question. Look at verse 7. He says, For, here's why I say all that, who sees anything different in you? that the phrase sees anything different is just one word which means to distinguish or evaluate or to draw out distinctions usually for the purpose of finding out which one is superior. Some of you ladies, when you're shopping, you you pick up a a cluster of bananas and you spin it around to see. You know, this is how much blackness is on this one, how much greenness is on this one. I want the superior cluster of bananas. You're weighing them and comparing them. That's the idea here. I'm going to compare these things to try to find out which is better. Who sees anything different in you? Who's who's making these distinctions? Paul says, "Who among you is capable of evaluating men in order to reveal the superior?" You all think you're superior apparently. Everybody's boasting in one another. Who who gave you this capability? Who's doing this? And again, it comes in connection with verse 6. So the flow is like this. Do not go beyond what is written. Don't be puffed up one against another. And the reason I'm saying this is, who is there to make that kind of distinction, to puff one up over the other? Now, the assertion, the statement that is implied in this question, I think is pretty obvious. He's saying, no one sees anything different in you. No one is making these distinctions. And the the, the words you here, are they're all singular. So it's as if he's he's talking now to the individual saint in Corinth. You individual saint in Corinth, you are not distinguished from your brothers and sisters. There is no distinction that makes you better than them by which you might puff yourself up over them so again the flow of thought from verse 6 do not go beyond what is written don't be puffed up one against another the reason I say this is not one of you is actually higher than any other it doesn't make any sense then the the second question what do you have that you did not receive now if we go back to chapter 3 verse 21 he had said all things are yours Paul and Apollos are yours describing the Christian ministry. It it is yours. It's a gift. It's for your service. But these things are not ours. They don't belong to us by natural birth. We didn't come into the world possessing all things because of who we are, because of our parents. We're not born into the possession of all things naturally. It's only through the new birth that we come into possession of what Christ has won for us. All these things that belong to the church, that are ours for our service and for our good, have been procured by the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and they are made over to us as gifts because of our union with Him. He possesses all things. All these things are yours, and you are Christ's. You belong to Him, therefore you get all that He has won. Ephesians 4, 8, he says... Paul writes, when he ascended, that is, when the risen Christ ascended into the heavens, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That is, because Christ has ascended, because he has finished the work of making an atonement for sins, has been raised from the dead, has passed through the heavens and taken his seat beside the right hand of God, because he has that position and that authority, he pours out gifts among his people. All things. So they are ours. But they're not ours just because we exist. They're ours because we have been united to Christ. So that's why he asks. What do you have that you did not receive? Or the, the assertion would be the implication is. All that you have was given to you. It was a gift. From God. You're just the recipients of God's gifts. Third question. If then you received it, there you see he's assuming the positive answer, yes. Since it is true that you're merely the passive recipients of God's gracious gifts, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you act arrogantly as if it was you who did something to get this gift? Why would you act like possessing a gift, somebody put something in your hand that you weren't looking for, you weren't striving after, they put it in your hand, why would you then boast as if you did something to get that? That's what he's saying. Why, why are you acting like you can lay claim on some power of attainment when you just, you're just the recipient? And the implication is clearly that when we boast over our brethren, we're acting like we have done something to earn some gift of God. Many times we will say God is sovereign and we believe we're saved by sovereign grace and salvation is a gift. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It's all the free gift. And then, but then after that, all of the, the, the graces that come after that, we, we forget everything we said at first. If God is sovereign in the, the work of regeneration, justifying us based upon the objective work of Christ outside of us, He's also sovereign in the dispensation of every single particular instance of grace Present. that we ever receive. Yes. He's saying boasting is, is not good because when you boast, you're actually practically denying those first two statements. What you're saying is there is something better about me. I do have something that I earned, I worked for, and therefore I can boast. The point is, as he's already said, stop boasting in men. That no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do not boast in men. Here again, stop boasting in men. Coming out of of verse 6, we put all of this together. Learn this lesson. Do not go beyond what is written. Do not be puffed up one against another, because in reality, not one of you is any higher than the other. In actuality, everything that you have was given to you freely by God's grace. Therefore, stop boasting in men. Stop. Now, earlier we talked about this tendency that we have to think too highly of ourselves. To be boastful, to be prideful, to be haughty. To think that we are somehow better than our brother or sister. And that's a a sin that we have to mortify. Paul says, if you by the Spirit put to to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So so by the power of the Spirit, we are required to kill sins like this. The tendency to pride. Well, how do we do that? What is the the great weapon of the Spirit? Well, it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our duty in this issue with this sin of the the tendency to be puffed up and arrogant is to have our minds renewed by the Spirit as He uses the Word of God. So what does the Word of God teach us here? Well, it teaches us we do have this tendency towards self-promotion. Maybe I shouldn't say it teaches us. It just exposes it. It just pulls back the the veil and says, you see who you are? You you wanted to act like you weren't this way? God says, you kind of are this way. So it reveals it to us. The Word of God reveals it. That we would have this tendency to arrogance and pride. That 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 tendency would even get to the point where we would even trample upon verbally or even mentally our own brothers and sisters. So how can I use, how can we use what Paul has just said, the sword of the Spirit. How can we use that to renew our minds, to transform our thinking... So that we can, together, mortify the sin of self-promotion and endeavor after humility. Or maybe we should say, how can we, with the help of the Spirit, using the sword of the Spirit, put to death this sin, this tendency? And I think here, we could very simply say, you must hear, affirm, and believe the truth that Paul teaches here. Believe the truth. Faith. Whenever you're tempted with pride, whenever you're tempted to look down upon a brother or sister, whenever you're tempted to gloat or boast in some good thing that you see in yourself, just take Paul's questions and ask them to yourself. Self, who sees anything different in you? Self, who made you to differ Self, I notice that you're you're thinking highly of yourself. Who gave you that certificate that says that you have the liberty to make such distinctions? Self, what do you have that you did not receive? Where's that thing that you think you can boast in because it wasn't given to you freely as a gift? Point point to that thing. Just put your finger on it so so I can see it. Where did it come from? You'd have to say, well, it comes from God. Okay, then. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Just ask these questions to ourselves. Or we could skip the middleman and go straight to the assertions. Preach a, a, a stern sermon to yourself. Self, there is no real distinction between you and that person that makes you better than them. Whatever distinction you think you're seeing, whatever might be apparent, it is God alone who has sovereignly ordered all things, not you. You don't have anything that you did not receive from God. Maybe preach to yourself a sermon from James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What do you have that you did not receive? All oh, that thing no, your your Father gave that to you. And tell yourself, self, the only reason that you are tempted to boast right now to think arrogantly about a brother or sister or of yourself over a brother or sister, the only reason is that you are either ignoring or you have forgotten a very, very basic biblical truth. You were taken from the dust of the earth. You were born. You came out of the womb, not by any strength of your own. You came out of the womb and breathed your first breath of the earth of this planet as a covenant breaker. You came into the world into a broken covenant. And the punishment for that is eternal torment. That's how you came into the world. But God in his infinite pity looked down upon your low estate he pitied you and he said i will send my son to take upon that one the penalty for his or her sin he will be punished in their place so that they can have eternal life and every spiritual truth that you have ever heard that's ever entered into your ears god gave that Going beyond that, every truth that you've ever actually understood and came to believe, that was a gift from God. And the mental capacity to understand, the faith to believe, those are gifts from God. Do you have, I hope we have convictions. Do you, do you have any convictions? God did that. You didn't come to that on your own. God did that. If you've got a biblical conviction, God did that. That's not something you can boast in. The fact that we woke up today in the faith is because our heavenly father sat over us as we slept, sustained our bodies, sustained our minds, sustained our souls so that when we woke up, we would not hit the floor running headlong into hell. He upheld us. As we read, he put his left arm under our head and his right arm under us and drew us close. And he said, I will hold you so that you will not drift. You will not go away. That's the only reason you woke up today thinking, I'm a Christian. The only reason. Nothing that you have can be traced to you. You've done nothing to deserve Any of God's gifts, as Paul would say later on, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Period. See how you can make use of the sword of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit to mortify? You preach that sermon to yourself a few times, eventually you'll start believing it. You'll say, I've heard this sermon over and over and over again. Perhaps you can see now why Paul's getting a little stern with the Corinthians. Kim Riddlebarger comments to take personal credit for a gift from God is the height of worldliness. It's almost like they got under Paul's skin a little bit. There weren't probably weren't very many things that could agitate him. I think we find out in Galatians believing a false gospel agitates him pretty hard. But here we find out that this idea that a Christian would boast in something that God gave them it's agitating him a little. Let's put ourselves in his shoes. Imagine being a man who was on a tyrannical tirade against the church, hunting down men and women, having them thrown into prison. Imagine having to look back on your past, all of your learning, all of your your pedigree, your physical pedigree, your upright morality, and having to say, even with all of that, I was so blind that I went about persecuting the saints of the Most High God that I claimed to worship. That's how blind I was. Imagine looking back on that and then recollecting that day when Jesus Christ stopped you in your tracks, in your path towards certain destruction. He took out your heart of stone, he gave you a heart of flesh, so that you immediately became a man that as soon as you could see, you became proclaiming the the Christ that you once persecuted. All of this only because God stepped in the way. That's all Christ came and said, I'm stopping you, you're done. That's Paul's history. Imagine how well he understood this notion that every spiritual gift that we have comes from God. Imagine how embarrassed he would have to be when the thought would come into his his mind, a recollection, a, a little scene from his past where he was dragging a Christian mother out of her house to be put in prison. He had, he had to live that. Imagine how embarrassing that would have been, but then how grateful he would have been for God's mercy. He would say, I would still be there doing that if God had not stopped me. And then he, imagine that you pour yourself out for a church to try to preach to them this gospel only to find out not long after you left that they were boasting in themselves, boasting over one another as if they had earned all these gifts. Here you are having been beaten and stoned and whipped and all of these things so that they could hear the gospel. You leave and they begin to boast in themselves. How foolish is that? Imagine how agitated you would get that they are believing something so contrary. How insane is sin that they would think this way, but in reality, that Paul's story is, though some of the details are different, surely, that's the story of every Christian. We were, we were going to hell, walking, some of us running, headlong into hell, happy as we could be, blind as the day we were born, strutting our way proudly into hell, and God stepped in our way and stopped us. How foolish would it be for us to then begin to boast in ourselves? Surely we ought to adopt Paul's attitude towards this kind of thinking. I think it would be okay for us to say, you know, sometimes I get a little harsh with myself when I re- recognize that I'm be- being arrogant. Arrogant that I'm being boastful. We ought to beg God to give us an extra sensitive spiritual gag reflex at the very thought of puffing ourselves up over others. It ought to nauseate us that even the, the, the whiff of arrogance in ourselves, the pride in ourselves would come into our, the, our, our, the nostrils of our mind. It ought to make us sick. Me? What do I have that I didn't receive? Who's making distinctions? If I received everything freely, why would I boast? It ought to make us sick to know that God has saved us through Christ to the praise of His glorious grace, and then we creatures of the dust would come and try to rob some of that glory for ourselves. It ought to make make us sick. It ought to make us long for heaven. We won't war with that anymore. It's only through the power of Christ That crucified, risen, ascended, seated, reigning Jesus. It's only by His power that any of us will ever overcome such wickedness. So let's pray and make our appeal to Him.